The Rural Health Voice, Episode 11, Health Equity. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What's the difference between equality and equity? Dr. Lauren Powell, Director of the Virginia Department of Health, Office of Health Equity, joined me to talk about how giving everyone the same thing is not the same as giving everyone what they need. All right. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice, Dr. Powell. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, as the Director of the Office of Health Equity, what exactly does health equity mean to you? I actually get that quite a bit. Um, health equity is kind of a jargony, like public health, more academic term that does not translate well to the public. So the way that I describe it is, um, it is my job, it is my office's job to ensure that uh, those living in the most economically deprived and poorest parts of the Commonwealth of Virginia have the same opportunity to achieve health and wellness as those living in the most affluent parts of the state. So what that means to me is that uh, we are constantly looking at and sort of trying to remind lots of people uh, in charge, legislators, if you will, um, the heads of certain hospitals and other entities throughout our communities, trying to remind them about uh, the fact that health is really influenced by so much more than just your interaction with the healthcare system, that actually we spend the majority of our lives just living in whatever community we live in and whatever environment we're exposed to, and that that actually has more of an impact on our health and our health outcomes than how often we're able to perhaps go to the doctor. Now, your website says that the office focuses on I'm quoting here, strengthening the health of rural communities, minorities, underemployed, and uninsured citizens. Mm -hmm. Why do those groups need a different approach than what the Virginia Department of Health does for the general population? So we know that statistics and really lived experience, so both qualitative and quantitative data, um, show us that there are certain populations in uh the Commonwealth and really across the country that um, are kind of experiencing a little bit of subpar sort of uh, health outcomes. And so we know that rural communities are among those racial and ethnic minorities and other minorities, sexual minorities are actually among that as well. Um, those who are uh, uninsured, underinsured, though Medicaid expansion recently has really tremendously impacted that area. Um, and, and those who are kind of on the fringes of society. So the health outcomes that they experience really uh, become very costly to the healthcare system, number one, but are very uh, damaging to the quality of life for those populations um, as well. And so those groups of people really do need uh, almost an advocate, if you will, or uh, a champion is, is more like it, a, a champion to... Uh, actively kind of seek um, resources and, and seek uh, answers that will help them, assist them in living their healthiest life. Um, that often requires us to put more resources towards some of these communities. And that is a point of, of the term equity, 
right? So the difference I often hear, uh, well, I should say a lot of people ask me like, what is the difference between equality and equity? Um, some people use them interchangeably, but they're very different words. Um, equality is really the root of what America kind of founds itself on, uh, that everyone should get the same thing, right? So equality, everyone's getting the same thing. But equity means that we're giving people what they actually need. Um, there's a wonderful Robert Wood Johnson Foundation graphic uh, that really illustrates this very well. Shows people on the top row with uh, bicycles. And you see that there are different types of people who need different types of bicycles. So um, equality is giving someone who is like short and someone who's really tall and maybe someone who's disabled the same type of bike. But equity is giving the person who's short, maybe a taller bike, the person who's tall, perhaps a shorter bike, the person who's disabled, the correct bike so they can actually participate in riding a bike. Um, and so that's kind of the, the illustration as to why we need an Office of Health Equity and why there are certain populations that we uh, are really quite focused on. That, that's really interesting that the concept of it's not everybody needs the same thing is it's that everybody needs what's right for that individual. And I, I think when we talk about equality in general terms, we skip the fact that, you know, even if we're all equal, we're not necessarily the same. Mm -hmm. Correct. And I think um, equality has good intentions, um, and I don't think it's necessarily all bad. I'll give you a great example of equality. Medicaid expansion is a wonderful example of equality, right? We have made uh, a historic, like landmark moves with legislation. Uh, truly, really excited and very, very proud of that. Um, and I'm happy with the contributions our office was able to uh, to make in that and in helping to uh, educate legislators really on who they would be leaving out, perhaps, if, if Medicaid expansion wasn't something that was decided upon. So I, I, I can't overstate the excitement and the wonderful accomplishment that Medicaid expansion is. But it is an example of equality because we're giving everyone in the state, essentially, right, those who are uninsured and those who are most on the fringes of, of our society, we're giving them all the same thing. We're giving them health care insurance coverage. But that does not equate to equity, right? Because there are some people who are going to need more than just health insurance for them to live a healthy life. So that means there are also some communities, I often think of our rural communities, some of our urban communities as well, who are going to need a lot more resources, a lot more help, if you will, a lot more uh, attention uh, to bring them to the state of living uh, their healthiest in in best life, essentially, then perhaps a more affluent community in maybe Northern Virginia, though there are pockets of inequities there as well. It reminds me of the phrase the National Rural Health Association uses that says, insurance does not equal access. You can have the best insurance money can buy, but if you live in some areas of rural Virginia, that doesn't mean any services are available. That is absolutely correct. Um, and I often, that can be used interchangeably for a lot of things. We talk about food deserts, um, both in rural places and in um, more urban places. 
um, that placing a structure or, or placing um, a resource in a community does not equal access, right? Um, giving someone an insurance card does not guarantee that they can actually get to the, the doctor, get to the emergency room, get to the hospital as readily and as easily as they need to, um, and as consistently perhaps as they need to in order to live a healthy life. Similarly, dropping perhaps a grocery store in a, in a rural area um, that is still maybe 15 miles away. So maybe it's not 30 miles away, but now it's just 15 miles away. That still means nothing. If the people who need to access it do not have transportation. So it's, it's kind of, uh, I feel like it's my, my job sometimes and it's my office's job to pull the pieces of the puzzle together for, for people often in leadership and decision-making positions who have never had, who don't have a frame of reference for like having to live this way Um, and and pulling the pieces of the puzzle together to help them see that solutions have to be holistic, right? We have to give people what they need. So maybe a grocery store isn't all this community needs, right? Maybe uh, insurance coverage isn't all this community needs. Maybe they need mass, uh, mass transit. Maybe they need some solution with transportation. Maybe they need broadband access uh, so that they could actually participate in telehealth. Uh, maybe they need more jobs. Maybe they need jobs that actually provide health insurance. Um, so so this is kind of where my office, uh, where we try to, to come in and be uh, a voice and a champion for uh, all of those who are sometimes forgotten. So what projects does your office have in place to address these issues? Mm -hmm. Well, we have uh, several projects in place and we're always looking for new opportunities to partner and to uh, get new projects off the ground. I will say that we also do several kind of administrative tasks that are really important to the state. Um, So administratively, we do uh, the management of designating areas as health provider shortage areas. So HIPSAs, as they're called for short. Um, It's actually a very detailed process where we're always tracking and looking at shifts in the population um, and shifts kind of in provider coverage in certain areas um, to ensure that we are designating the, uh, the part, the areas that need it the most. Um, as health provider shortage areas. And that designation means then that we are able to assist with placing providers in those areas to to try to um, ease some of that burden uh, for the community residents living there. Um, so we have that, but more specifically in projects, we have um, an exciting project that we're kicking off in far Southwest Virginia, the uh, a rural health focused uh, project around the opioid response, uh, the opioid crisis. Um, and we are working with uh, ASAC, the Appalach- Appalachian Substance Abuse Coalition, um, to really help, uh, I want to say, provide a stronger foundation, though there already is a strong foundation there, but providing more resources to that coalition to expand and uh, solidify kind of their ongoing long presence in that area around uh, substance abuse and uh, substance abuse prevention. Um, 
and providing, you know, additional hope and help for those uh, who are suffering tremendously from the opioid crisis. Um, we do have some additional CDC funding to uh, train some outreach, some folks in outreach specifically around the opioid crisis, and really trying to bring an equity lens to this. We want to make sure we're focusing not only on the rural parts of the state who have been dealing with this for a very long time. I think it's really important that we know that this isn't something that just popped up in the past five years. The uh, ASAC, which is what they are for short, Appalachian Substance Abuse Coalition, has been a champion and has been fighting for this for their community for over 20 years. Um, And so we know that's not a new problem in rural parts of the state. It's also not a new problem in urban parts of the state. Um, And so we're trying to, again, bring an equity lens here and ensure that all of the communities, as many as we can possibly uh, impact across the state, regardless of geography, um, are receiving, you know, support and uh, uh, solutions, essentially, to try to overcome this opioid crisis. And we appreciate that and the opportunity to work with you on it. Thank you. Now, looking at, at health equity, you know, with my work, one of the stereotypes that I run into is that people tend to generalize rural America as being just populated by white people. But that's not really true, is it? <laughs> it's actually not true. Right. It's really not true. Um, and, and I find that as well um, in a lot of different spaces I'm in. I, I actually think there is a lot to be learned here um, by so many different audiences about um, rural areas and rural health in general. So I'm excited that as I continue to learn, I'm, I'm not from Virginia, so I'm very pleased and very honored to be here and I'm very grateful for the gracious people who have welcomed me into their communities across the state. Um, but I did grow up in Indiana, so... Uh, I am familiar with, you know, rural parts of states. I did not grow up in a rural part of the state, but um, I certainly have family and, you know, other friends and colleagues who are in more rural parts of uh, the country. So you're absolutely correct on that. And um, I'm really flabbergasted at how um, easily sometimes we racialize words, rural, urban, right? And we place a... um, a face, an image, if you will, um, behind those words that helps us sort of codify what we mean when we use them. Um, and you're right. That is a, it's a major stereotype that's totally untrue. There are uh, folks who have immigrated to this country who live in rural areas. There are Black people who live in these areas, Latinos. Uh, it runs the, the full spectrum of diversity. Um, and we also need to, you know, keep that in mind when we are offering uh, solutions and, and trying to partner with communities there. They are not homogenous. Uh, they're not all the same. They're not monolithic. They don't all think the same. Um, to to think that that would be true would be to gravely generalize and uh, really not do justice to the variety of people and individuals who live in rural communities. And recognizing that they are not a monolith, again, ties back to the concept of health equity and making sure people have what they need instead of everybody having exactly the same thing. 
that's absolutely correct. And uh, we are certainly working hard to um, uncover the multitude and, and the variety and diversity of folks who live in rural areas. Um, it can sometimes be challenging because, you know, obviously there's a large spread of space sometimes between pockets of people. Um, but my office, I'm really, we're very committed to, and I'm really trying to um, charge VDH as an entire agency to actively engage in community inclusiveness. So beyond just community engagement, which to me says, I, I interact with you when I want to. I would like us to move more towards community inclusiveness, which is you're included um, consistently. So it's not that we just engage with you on uh, a, you know, quarterly basis or, or whenever we have a new program rolling out or something like that. It is that we are in true relationship with you. And I recognize the challenge of doing that across the state. Um, but I certainly think it's something that we should invest in, not only in, in my office, but uh, in the agency, because that is how we are able to get to the root of what it is that people actually need, as opposed to assuming that they all need the same thing. Nationally, we are celebrating Black History Month. Are there health issues or events specific to African Americans that we should keep in mind? Yes, we are. Thank you for recognizing that. Really excited about Black History Month. Um, there are a couple of challenges um, specific to, I think, health and wellness in the Black community. One, our office is putting on a, a symposium and community discussion here in Richmond. We're kind of using it as a pilot to see if we could do this in other parts around the state. Um, but a discussion around mental health in the Black community, um, about racism, uh, stigma, and the impacts of that on health outcomes. Um, as we recognize Black History Month and the impacts of so many great African-American leaders, you know, we also have to recognize the history of racism in this country that continues to be per pervasive um, and continues to uh, significantly marginalize the, the potential for, you know, a full and holistic life for African-Americans. Um, so we are sort of curating this discussion because it's important, um, because in my opinion, uh, racism um, and discrimination generally, to me, remain uh, among the biggest challenges to us achieving health equity. And uh, we are curating a conversation on, on this in particular because mental health is something so very important, not only to the African-American community, but uh, to other communities as well. And I just don't think we talk about it enough in a health equity sense. So tell me more about how systemic racism turns into a public health issue. Mm -hmm. um, so... Systemic racism is one among several levels of racism. So we'll, we usually end up talking a lot about interpersonal racism. So that is um, racial slurs or, or that is uh, microaggressions, right? People uh, engaging in small digs that constantly remind you of, of race or, or things related to your race. Um, we often, as a society, I think, get 
pigeonholed and thinking about interpersonal racism and kind of policing one another. Now, that certainly has a place and it's very important because it can lead to structural racism. And structural racism is really where you have a system of policies and like institutional practices and other norms, let's say in government institutions, in, uh, in companies, and sort of in other larger scale um, organizations and things that sort of uh, police our life in a sense in society that systemically and inherently uh, favors privileges for white people and disadvantages those who are of color. Um, this is sometimes becomes a little abstract for some people who have, who don't experience this perhaps day to day, but it really is not all that abstract. If you, uh, really sit down and and think about the laws and the ways in which policies and things are created and have been created to run this country and then to run the separate organizations that we are affiliated with. Um, This becomes a public health issue because um, it impacts, you know, our health outcomes. So, I could give you an example. Let's say, let's look at policies for housing. Um, Historically, there was a creation of um, areas that were deemed as highly desirable and then areas that were deemed as very undesirable, largely because they were frequented and uh, inhabited by African-Americans, Latinos, other immigrants, perhaps to the United States in the period of time. That was around um, the 50s, the 40s, 50s, maybe. Um, And that's what led to the creation of redlining. So those areas that were undesirable were marked as red, red zones. They were outlined on maps and they were called, uh, you know, those were areas that were undesirable. Redlining, so a redlined district Um, was not a place that banks were willing to provide home loans to. So now we have an entire uh, segregated community that does not have access to capital to actually own their homes. In addition to that, you know, there was uh, a disinvestment and a lack of investment altogether in in things that would help sort of uh, beautify those areas and keep them to the same standards as uh, more white and affluent areas that were not red zoned or uh, redlined. How that has impacted us today? Well, there are maps that we sometimes I reference in some of my presentations that show some of the health outcomes. Um, just in Richmond, we can look at Richmond. You can literally overlay a map, let's say, of life expectancy in Richmond City. You can literally overlay that with a redlined map uh, from, you know, 40 years ago. And you can see that the areas that were redlined are the areas with the lower lowest life expectancy even still today. So structural racism has a significant impact on um, the ability for certain communities, uh, for certain populations to receive the same resources to uh, receive the same consequences, if you will. We can look at the criminal justice system, um, the incarceration of men of color, Black and Latino in particular. 
it impacts the ability to have equity just in your life, just in living your life. And that certainly has um, extreme outcomes when it comes to health. And certainly, you know, when you think about all the different aspects of life that we tie back into health, you know, whether that's where you live, whether that's being able to secure a job, mm-hmm. you, whichever, all of those roll into what I think a lot of people call social determinants of health. Can you tell us more about those? Yes, absolutely. The social determinants of health are all of those things outside of your actual interaction with a, a healthcare provider or going to a hospital that impacts your health. That is whether you have stable and um, safe housing, whether you live in a safe neighborhood or whether there's a lot of violence around um, your access to education. Um, we know that education is one of the number one predictors actually of health outcomes. So that's a very important influencer on your health. Um, employment, the ability to hold a full-time job, the ability to have a job that provides healthcare benefits and other benefits, the ability to um, perhaps work a job during, you know, nine to five hours. There are also studies about that and how that impacts your health. Um, Whether you have to have multiple jobs, right? That's leading to chronic stress. That certainly impacts your health. Um, those are sort of just a couple, uh, transportation, a, a very important determinant of health, right? I could have a job, but maybe it's all the way across town and it takes me four buses to get there. Um, what, are, what's the likelihood that I'm going to be able to keep my job long-term? Um, am I able to get to the doctor as quickly as I'd like to? When we think about rural areas, uh, something that is so very troubling to me and we're, we're working on this, actively thinking about it, is uh, the challenges for our EMS providers in rural areas and also for our residents who often don't have another way to get to the doctor. And so sometimes they call ambulances and, you know, sort of use them as um, a form of transportation and and Uber service, if you will, um, to get them to the doctor. And that, you know, that's tremendously costly. It's, it's really, um, it's really unfair and it's just, it's really frustrating. Um, not only for people who, who need that in an emergency, right. Who, who feel like they need to get to the doctor, they have no other way to get there, but it's also challenging for our EMS folks, right. Who need to respond to emergencies, but instead may be taking someone to the the doctor, because that's the only way they can get there. They know how to get there. Um, these things impact our health tremendously. As I started out saying, you spend so much more time just living your life outside of a perhaps 20 minute doctor visit. And all of those things have an impact on your health. Now, the other health issue I was thinking in terms of African-American population, isn't there a a big issue currently with maternal health? There is, yes. And this is not exactly something new. I'll say that it's received a lot more national attention for a couple of reasons. Um, But this isn't exactly the newest trend. So um, Unnatural Causes was a series, docuseries, that really documented Um, health inequities in a way that I think the country had not necessarily seen it. This came out 
I want to say in the early 2000s, maybe even the late 90s, but it's been a little while. There was a particular uh, chapter in that docuseries that was about um, low birth weight in um, African-American mothers. And essentially was the finding was that um, educational status and, and socioeconomics really um, did not play a role in whether uh, a black woman who was giving birth to a child would um, have a child of low birth weight, right? So that means I could be someone who does not have a high school degree, or I could be um, someone who has a PhD and like multiple doctorate degrees. And as a black woman, the outcomes were still the same. We see a very similar trend with um, maternal mortality. So that is black women who are dying, giving childbirth. Um, this became uh, really actually a New York times. It was a headline, I think in the spring, it was like the cover of the New York times uh, for a, an entire feature. Um, and it has gained a lot more recognition and a, a lot more notoriety due to famous black women such as Serena Williams and Beyonce speaking about kind of their um, like really scary um, traumatic kind of health issues um, while giving birth or shortly after giving birth. There was also a major article done by NPR about a CDC a researcher, an African-American woman who was at the top of her field who actually did research in health disparities and health inequities and um, she actually died as a result of complications from giving birth. Um, so there were a lot of high profile um, stories about this. And the reality is this is a, a major challenge and a major issue. Um, the root of it being um, racism. So in both the cases of uh, low birth weight and maternal mortality, what researchers have found is that it is the experience of not only being a woman, so that is sort of a gender minority, if you will, and being um, African-American, so being a racial and ethnic minority, the intersectionality of those two identities and living a life in the United States of America uh, in the body of, of those two intersectional identities puts a certain amount of wear and tear on the bodies of, of black women um, that is contributing to some of the outcomes we're seeing. The wear and tear is uh, really rooted in racism. It's, it's rooted in these experiences of anticipating racism, of experiencing racist encounters, um, the stress that is actually associated with even anticipating um, a racist encounter is enough to cause a stress response. Um, so if you could imagine a lived life experience um, of that daily and perhaps more than just one time a day, perhaps consistently and constantly for some, um, that is leading to um, tremendous inequities and uh, the tremendous loss of life for black women in particular. Um, I would say another level of that racism is is the lack of cultural humility and perhaps cultural understanding of our healthcare providers, some of our healthcare providers in both 
um, I believe in, at least in Serena's case, the story that she's told, um, she was very clear about how she had to essentially advocate for herself um, and, and for the need for medical attention because her physicians were really not taking her complaints and her, um, her, you know, symptoms very seriously. Um, that is rooted in, in racism. And if people with, you know, the resources that someone like her have, have a hard time, I can't imagine what somebody, you know, that may have basically a lower education, a lower level of health literacy, what their barriers might be. Absolutely. That is absolutely correct. Um, and I think that was the most shocking part of her sharing her story. I mean, she is a, an internationally recognized athlete, right? And wealthy. Uh, <laughs> a wealthy, extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. Um, and so what does that say about the healthcare systems we've created when an extremely wealthy, um, internationally recognized Black woman still has to advocate on her own behalf um, to receive, you know, the medical treatment that she needs um, for her body. Thinking more about, you know, health issues and African-American women, the Virginia Department of Health created Henrietta Lacks Legacy Week. Tell me about Henrietta Lacks and why VDH wanted to honor her. Yes, um, this is a really exciting highlight, I think, of, of last year for our office and for the agency. Um, last year's General Assembly session um, introduced a piece of legislation to create the Henrietta Lacks Commission. Um, that was a bill, a piece of legislation assigned to my office, and it ended up passing. And so we now have the first ever uh, Henrietta Lacks Commission. That is a group of nine members who are uh, responsible for creating the plan to build a, uh, we're calling it sort of loosely the Henrietta Lacks Life Science Center. So to create a biomedical cancer treatment and research facility in Halifax County, Virginia. Um, That is actually where Henrietta Lacks was born and raised. So let me first back up a little bit and talk about Henrietta Lacks. for your listeners who may not know who she is, Henrietta Lacks is the matriarch of public health and honestly the matriarch of modern medicine. Um, she's an African-American woman who was born and raised here in Virginia and actually Clover, Virginia, which is uh, near Halifax. And she uh, moved to Baltimore at a certain point in her life and she was undergoing treatment for uh, cervical cancer. Um, In her treatment, she was being seen by doctors at Johns Hopkins um, Hospital, Johns Hopkins Medical Center, and um, the physicians removed a sample of her cells uh, at that time, and uh, she unfortunately went on to actually pass away from um, cervical cancer and at a very young age. I think she was uh, 31, so she was extremely young, and her form of cancer was very aggressive. she unfortunately succumbed to that cancer, but her cells lived on and they are actually still alive today. So her cells actually became the first line of immortal uh, human cells to be used for everything from stem cell treatments to additional cancer treatments. Um, 
to HIV and AIDS treatments, um, to create the polio vaccine, practically any uh, medical advancement we have had in the past um, 60 years or so has come from Henrietta Lacks, has come from the use of her cells. And so uh, we were very excited and very honored that the state um, and the legislature actually voted unanimously to pass the uh, this bill associated with Henrietta Lacks to create a commission in her honor. To further um, celebrate this, we asked the governor to proclaim a week in September as Henrietta Lacks Legacy Week. That was to coincide with the kickoff of the Henrietta Lacks Commission. Um, the commission has now been in inception for uh, several months. They've met several times and are actively working on uh, plans and engaging additional stakeholders and um, additional partners towards our goal of, of creating the Henrietta Lacks Life Science Center. And so the Office of Health Equity wanted to celebrate that. We did that for uh, for a week. And um, we will continue to provide opportunities to educate not only the state, but, you know, the nation and the world about Henrietta Lacks. That's an incredible legacy. Thank you. We're really, really excited about it. And also very honored that her family um, is is deeply involved as well. So, so we have her great granddaughter is actually a part of the commission and is a great partner and supporter to the office as well. Wonderful. If people are concerned about health equity in their communities, what can they do about it? What actions would you recommend for individuals? Well, I think there are a number of of things I would tell people to do. Um, Number one, I get asked this question a lot. And I think the first thing I would say is actually to be politically active. So politically active in in however you uh, may define yourself politically. But I, I think that it is important for people to be informed about what's happening in their communities. Um, so a lot of the sort of sanctions and a lot of the, the laws and policies and things that govern some of the social determinants of health, the things that we were discussing, let's say um, the creation of new transportation lines or uh, zoning about things happening in certain neighborhoods, um, those things are decided on a local level. They're not decided necessarily by the governor or um, the president. And so I would greatly encourage people to consider learning more about what's happening in your community, how you can uh, have a voice in your community. And I actually really think that is very closely tied to health equity. Um, More than that, I would also say, you know, to consider who in your community perhaps is um, most vulnerable or or most open to, um, you know, having poor health outcomes and think about ways in which we could work together in my office or ways in which you could work with other stakeholders and partners in your community to, to make that not the case. Um, I will always say, and I continue to say um, and deeply believe that communities have their own answers. They know what the answer is. They know what they need. Um, you know, they sometimes know exactly how to get it. 
Um, it is the job of people like me in my office to not, you know, blanket, blanketly prescribe a solution to communities, but to ask them what they need and to work with them to help them achieve it. Um, there's tremendous power in, in communities. And I try not to use uh, phrases such as empower the community because the power is already there. Um, oftentimes it is the resources sometimes that are not. Um, and, and so I, those are just kind of, I guess some of the ways I would encourage folks to think about um, how to get involved in health equity, if you will. And you can always reach out and talk to me <laughs> or folks in my office. Uh, we are more than happy to help however we can. Terrific. And if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Wow. If I could do anything. Okay. Um, I read a very interesting article um, earlier this week asking about whether uh, lack of broadband access is um, a new, I forget what it, they use the phrase like social isolation, something like that, leading to like social isolation um, or the new social deprivation, something in that lane. Though it does not seem perhaps um, directly connected, I would like create the strongest and fastest broadband system for wireless and land access in rural America. And I actually think that would do tremendous amounts for health equity and for health inequities in the, in those areas. Um, because if it were, and, and I also think it would be perhaps a more costly solution that would lead to other solutions down, down the line. So one, we would then be able to guarantee that people have telehealth access, right? Um, like on their phones. So as opposed to having to, you know, perhaps make sure people have like computers and stuff, if they actually have telehealth access so I can at least access a doctor on my phone, um, then we may not have to expend all the resources right away necessarily to uh, create like bus lines and make sure that there's transportation to get people to a doctor right away. Um, this certainly wouldn't be a band-aid for other things, but I do think it would tremendously improve um, access on a certain level. I also think broadband, uh, widespread spread broadband access and sort of modernizing just technology and the ability to connect in rural areas would attract employers. So I think it would attract employers who could um, impart uh, jobs, much needed jobs and uh, an economic boost to rural areas. Um, with jobs often come um, additional resources um, and then the potential for like private insurance, um, which I always think, you know, is a great way for folks to be able to build stability is to have a, a full-time job with, you know, a livable wage and um, insurance, health insurance. Um, and so I think, you know, it seems like something that may be uh, approximate, <laughs> uh, approximately uh, related to health outcomes, but I actually think it would tremendously impact um, 
health and wellness in rural communities. Well, as someone who lives in rural America who does not have broadband at her house, I wholeheartedly support your suggestion. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. Powell. Appreciate your time here today. My pleasure. Let me thank you for the work that the Virginia Rural Health Association does. Thank you for being a strong partner with our office. Um, and thank you for advocating, continue to advocate for the voice of uh, rural Virginia. And we stand here with you as well. Thank you for the opportunity. That's Dr. Lauren Powell from the VDH Office of Health Equity, encouraging people to get involved in their local communities. If you want to learn more about the resources available to your community, check out the Virginia State Office of Rural Health Partnership Meeting, March 11th through 13th in Roanoke. For details, visit us at vrha.org, click the calendar tab, and scroll down to that event. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association. 